Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Today's Spirit in Action guest is sociologist and author Alan G. Johnson. In his memoir, Not From Here, Alan takes us on an odyssey of introspection about our unrootedness and the symptoms of that dysfunction in our personal and national identities. Things like the native genocide, slavery, but also the holes in our personal lives because we simply don't belong. Alan is the author of a number of sociology books, but also novels and this memoir to lead us to engage more deeply with our world and ourselves. He joins us by phone from his home in Connecticut. Alan, thank you so much for joining us today for Spirit in Action. Thank you for having me, Mark. You're in Connecticut, but the book, Not From Here, traverses essentially my backyard. I mean, you're down in Iowa, you're over in Minnesota, which is right across the border from me in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and you're out to Montana. Your mother was from Wisconsin. So how foreign is the Midwest to you? It it seemed like something of a real expedition for you to do the traveling that you talk about in Not From Here. In terms of place, I would say relatively foreign. I identify more with the Northeast than any other part of the country. The Midwest, for me, is where my relatives are from. That's how I think of it. And prior to this trip, my time in the Midwest was pretty much limited to my childhood and visiting relatives, and that wasn't very often. So I don't have a particular attachment to the Midwest in that sense. Do you like our accent? <laughs> Your accent is, is fine. It's as pleasing as my own. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an accent, <laughs> you know. So you mentioned that the Midwest is where you identify your relatives as being from. But the big question in the book is, where are you from? And for you, that was a hard question to answer. Can you just explain a little bit about the history of that question for you and what it meant to you? Well, it begins, as does the memoir, with my father and my asking him where did he want his ashes to be placed after he died. He shrugged and said he didn't care, that it made no difference to him at all. And at the time, I didn't think much of that because I think it didn't make a difference to me either. It, wasn't, it didn't present itself to me as something that really would be a problem. And then he died, and two or three years later, I still had my portion of his ashes and increasingly felt that I had to do something with them, something meaningful. And as I sat with that, I realized, first of all, that I had no idea what to do with them. 
And second of all, that I had no idea what to tell my children to do with me. So I didn't know where my father belonged, and I didn't know where I belonged. And so I wound up standing off on what was the closest that I could get to my father's lived lineage. So I started, uh, I mean, I flew into Minneapolis and then drove to South Dakota, which was really in many ways where the trip begins, which is where my father went to high school, that period of his life. And then I worked my way back through Minnesota to where he was born in Wells and then finished in Iowa where his father was born and where my great-grandparents settled as farmers after emigrating from Norway. And throughout this whole trip, I was looking for a place where I belonged and where my father belonged. And of course, I wanted those two places to be the same because it made no sense to me that the father would belong someplace and his son wouldn't because it seemed to me that's the whole point of being descended from someone, of having ancestors, is that you're from the same place. You belong in the same place. Do you think that you would have been called on this odyssey if you had not been a sociologist? I see something essential in your sociological thinking that made this extra important for you. It's impossible to know what I would have done if I were somebody else. <laughs> and my sociological sensibility is a, is a huge part of who I am, not, not all by any means, but it's a, certainly a big piece of it. It certainly would not have been the journey that it was if I did not go out on the land knowing what I know about the stories that the land has to tell, that it contains the history of that land not only in terms of Native Americans, but African Americans. I mean, the whole history of this country is full of those stories. And so that one of the experiences that I had was, given how much solitude I had, I mean, this was 10 days and almost 2,000 miles in which I had myself and my father's ashes as sole company. So I had a lot of time and a lot of silence and a lot of solitude. One of the things that came to me increasingly as I was on this journey was that my personal story, my father's story, my grandfather's, grandmother's story, all of these personal stories are embedded in a much larger story, which is the story of, of the history, but also the history that continues into the present and how our personal lives were as participants in a larger story of a society and what was happening here. So I came away from this with a sense of my own story as being part of something larger and my sense of the many different levels on which things happen and that individual people acting is one level, but then there is this larger level that especially has to do with land and that is also going on. I noticed that it was the question about your father's ashes that drew you on this trip. And I noticed from your website, and folks, that website is agjohnson.us, that it was your father's ashes that drew you on this trip. Your mother, she had a clear sense of what she wanted done with her remains. But since you've written so many articles relating to patriarchy and the whole relationship, men and women, the gender knot is one of your books. It seems to me that there was something special in the way that your father's story engaged you that your mother's didn't. Well, again, it's one of those questions where I'll never know the answer because I don't get to do it over again. I think that the difference in my response to my mother's ashes and my father's had several pieces to it. One is that she told us. And I was younger then, 
and it didn't occur to me. Questions about land and belonging simply didn't occur to me at all as questions. So I wasn't ready for this when my mother died. That's one piece of it. And she didn't give me a reason to have to think of it. So I just did as she asked. When my father died, I had grown a fair amount. (laughs) I was considerably older, and he did not give me an easy path out of this. I'm quite certain that if he had just said, you know, I want you to bury me in such and such a place, I just would have done that, including if he'd asked me to take him to Norway, I would have taken him to Norway. And I can imagine that it might not have come up for me, this question of my belonging. Of course, part of the issue with that, and I'm sure in your gender studies and writings, men communicating in particular of your and my parents' generation, it was just very tight-lipped and very little happened. I found out, for example, after my father died, he had some papers. My mother died long before. He had letters that let me know that my mother had had a child when she was 16. It was given up for adoption. So I had a half-brother out there somewhere. So in addition to the seven kids that my mother and father produced, there's another one that was from my mother. But my father never mentioned it all those years growing up. So this tight-lipped father thing, was this in part some kind of connection for you, reconnection, the posthumous connection to your father that you were doing as part of this journey? I think there was certainly part of that going on. It felt important to me over those all those days and miles that his ashes were sitting, you know, within a couple of feet of me. And I had no illusions that it wasn't him. He didn't speak to me. He gave me he right through to the end he gave me no guidance whatsoever which in many ways drove home to me that this really was my journey. In some ways, yes, I was doing right by him as well as I knew how. But I think overwhelmingly this trip was about the question of where do I belong. And I can speculate all I want about did he know what he was doing when he told me it didn't matter. I doubt it because my father, as you say, the reticence, especially Norwegian men are famous for this. There's a joke joke my father liked to tell about the Norwegian man who loved his wife so much he almost told her. (laughs) And that's only halfway to the joke about the Norwegian who you can tell he's comfortable with you because when he speaks to you, he looks at your shoes instead of his own. (laughs) Yes. So, So he was certainly true to that. And my experience of him was that he, not only reticent, but that he lacked emotional curiosity. It was very rare that I heard him ask how someone felt in a serious way so that he would then have follow-up questions to whatever the response was. So that, yes, I was doing right by my father, but I think that I, I was in search of something, first for myself, but going back again to the sociologist, I was also aware that the experiences I were having were not unique to me. And the experiences that I've had since in just living with that experience and what it's come to mean to me is not unique to me. That I was taking a journey that in many ways is a journey that this entire nation needs to take in some way, everyone except Native Americans. That my not belonging is something that is endemic to this country. And that's exactly why I have you here today for Spirit in Action. Folks, we're speaking with Alan G. Johnson. The memoir he just published is Not From Here, and he's got a lot of other books. He's a sociologist by training, 
by disposition. You've taken, Alan, though, to writing both fiction and this memoir, as well as all the nonfiction stuff you've written for sociology students and learners along the way. It occurred to me that by writing memoir, you've included us in the story. You've led us to put our hearts in the story in the same way I think maybe your fiction does. Did you have a conscious design in moving from the academic, say, text or orientation to fiction and memoir? Well, with the fiction, that was a conscious design, and that that began some years ago. Uh, I was in my 50s, and I had written fiction and poetry as a boy and in high school and college. As a writer, that was my first calling, really. My first love was telling stories. Uh, There were reports that when I was in nursery school, I was known for telling stories to the kids, and the teacher actually remarked on it and thought, actually, I could pull back on that a little bit. Um, (laughs) So that very, but that's that's very much in my bones is telling story, and in many ways, my nonfiction. I think that it has appealed as widely as it has because it's in the vein of telling a story. I'm trying to tell a story about how the world works or some aspect of it, and so that the memoir for me was a combining of the two real parts of myself as a writer, the one who tells a story, and also the one who tries to step back and see that story in a larger context the sociologist. And this memoir does both of those things. As I read the book, I was aware of what you might be doing for me and for all the other readers. And I have you here on Spirit in Action because it looks like to me you're trying to get us to look at ourselves, our identity, our nation's identity, both the positives, but very importantly, the dysfunctions, things like the native genocide that was part and parcel of the founding of our nation, and things like slavery and much more. Was the book intended for all of us to look within, or was it simply you trying to find yourself? Oh, I would say both. I don't think I could help having it be both, being who I am. In the most immediate sense, as I wrote it, I was writing it for myself, because that's what I do. When I have something that's presented to me in the way that this was presented to me, then I don't really have a choice but to sit down and write about it. What I brought to that, of course, was my own activism, my own commitment to engaging with the full story, the full reality, not only of what's been, but what is currently. So it's both of those things. A parallel that you didn't bring out in the book that occurred to me as I was reading it is not knowing where you're from, not knowing where you belong geographically or ethnically or familially or wherever. Having that kind of lack of roots is parallel to being an orphan. And I think there's all kinds of strengths as well as pathologies that are associated with being an orphan, the fear of and maybe a need for overgrasping. And I think that maybe you perceive that as part of our national disease. But, of course, I want you to say what your opinion is, not echo mine. Well, I, I would say national condition and as I was listening to you, Mark, I was thinking that, well, orphan is a particular situation in which you don't have your parents. But I think that the displacement, the dislocation, in some ways the abandonment that we live with as a national condition goes back much, much farther. So for anyone in this country, except for someone who has migrated into this country recently, If you go back a certain number of generations, depending on who you are, you get to a point where there is this disconnect, where all the ancestors that go farther back from that point are from somewhere. They're from some people. 
they belong somewhere in that fundamental sense. But all the descendants going forward from that point don't belong anywhere. And so as a nation, going back through our entire history, we are a nation of displaced people. It's occurred to me that the United States historically has been the biggest refugee camp in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think of all the people who were in one way or another driven here, driven from where they were from to come here. And then I think about, well, what is the life of a refugee like? And of course, today there are millions of refugees in the world and we hear about them on the news and what, you know, what is life like for them and especially what is life like for their children who do not have this deep memory of place and people, but who grow up basically in this non-place that is not where they're from. And the answer is that it's not pretty. It produces tremendous problems for them. And I think that we see all kinds of symptoms of that historically and today in this country of this sense of restlessness, of rootlessness, of disconnection in our willingness to move about as if one place is pretty much as good as another. What distinguishes them is how good the jobs are or you know, whatever, but without any real sense of being rooted in place. I think the metaphor of being orphans, I think, has validity to it, but I think it goes much deeper than that and is something that gets inherited across generations. And so could you spell out what you think are the consequences of this lack of rootedness? The consequences exist, of course, on different levels. On a collective level, we have been, I think, and continue to be dangerous in the world because we don't have any sense of what makes land sacred, for example, to a people. And so we took North America from Native Americans with impunity, as if it was no big deal. Abrogating treaties, which we did, I think we made more than 400 treaties with Native Americans and broke every single one. You don't behave that way as a nation with such ease, unless you feel like it's just, you know, it's no big deal. You can just do it. You can just displace people from their land. So we've been dangerous in that way as a conquering people. And I think that's our whole history. And I don't think we're done, frankly. Our history is one of a restless, conquering people. And so on a collective level, I think that's a a huge consequence of this. On an individual level, I think that we struggle with, and I'm I'm not going to presume to speak for all individuals, but my perception is, is if there's a pattern that it is we struggle with a certain degree of being lost, of having nothing to hold on to, and that the symptoms of this are all over the place in this culture, especially through the rampant individualism in this country, the idea that my individual identity is my anchor. That's what anchors me in the world, which is the diametric opposite of what most indigenous peoples have seen as anchoring them in the world, which is to be part of a people who are defined in terms in relation to a place. We have gone about as far as you can go in the other direction, and it doesn't work. And so there is, I think there is this tremendous longing in this country for a sense of attachment, and that it is so painful to really look at that for what it is, that we have all of these things to distract us from it alcohol, drugs, work, sex, endless streams of information, texting, the internet, all of that. And that one of the effects of that is to distract us from the very kind of solitude and silence that I encountered on this journey. This was, again, 10 days, almost 2,000 miles, during which time, Mark, I never thought to turn on the radio in the car. I never even thought to plug in my iPod. 
It was a sustained immersion in silence and solitude out of which I was able to encounter these kinds of questions. And my sense of this country is that we are organized to avoid at all costs any prolonged silence and solitude in which we might actually discover ourselves, both individually and collectively, that we are organized against that possibility and that it's dangerous to our well-being and it's dangerous to the well-being of others. You know, probably two-thirds of the way into the book, Alan, I found some phrases that really captured for me what you're just talking about. One of them was a sentence where you said, we are joined by a sentimentalized alienation in common by the freedom to disregard anything that limits our ability to do whatever we want. And I went, oh my goodness, that is so us. That culture of my interests is, of course, why we can't control guns in this country, why socialism is screamed every time you try to regulate a business. But it's not only the political questions, it's how we deal with our neighbors. Anyway, is that your experience in Connecticut where you live? Yes and no. I mean, on one level, I like my neighbors and we cooperate with one another and all of that. And I'm also aware that beneath that is the unspoken understanding, usually unspoken, of generally speaking, you're supposed to leave me alone. You are not supposed to infringe on my ability to do anything I want, that that's the American way. As I was listening to you, Mark, what occurred to me was that in this country, freedom is seen as the freedom to be unattached, to not belong, because belonging is a reciprocal relationship. So I can think of belonging as that I belong to my family. I belong in my family. That's, I can think of that as a good thing for me in terms of its consequences for me. It means that I'm accepted. I have a place to go. It feels good, all of that, that I can think that's what it means to belong. There's a good thing there for me. But belonging also has responsibilities. It doesn't just have rights. And a belonging that does not include responsibilities, as far as I can tell, isn't a belonging at all. You might as well be floating in outer space. And that, I think, is one of the bizarre things about this culture, is that we insist on this freedom to not belong, because we are insisting in the freedom to not be accountable to one another. It occurs to me that one of the moments of truth that we may be living through right now in this country, especially around issues of the distribution of wealth and income, is two dramatically different worldviews. One of them is that it's everyone for themselves which is a very powerful worldview in this country. The other one is we are all in this together. And you can't get a whole lot different from those two worldviews. And the first is taking us pell-mell away from any sense of belonging. The United States then just becomes a venue for people to compete as free individuals who are accountable to nothing and no one. And the other one takes us back, frankly, to what we know of pretty much every indigenous society that ever existed. How we resolve the conflict between those two worldviews is going to determine where we go. We're going to say more about that in just a moment. But first, I want to remind you folks that you're listening to Spirit in Action. I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet, for this Northern Spirit Radio production. We're on the web at northernspiritradio.org. 
And on that site, you'll find more than 10 years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll find connections to our guests, more information about them. So you can track down Alan G. Johnson, his website, agjohnson.us. Again, you can make that connection through nordenspiritradio.org. When you visit our website, please post your comments so we know what you're thinking and make our conversation two-way. There's also a place where you can support Northern Spirit Radio by clicking support. Your donations can be done online or by mail. I want you to support, even more importantly, your local community radio station. Community radio provides a view into news and music that we get nowhere else on the American dial. And it's so important to have those alternative views and sources of inspiration available to all of us. So start by supporting them first. Again, Alan G. Johnson. That Alan, by the way, is A-L-L-A-N, which I don't know if I've ever seen that before, Alan. My middle name growing up was A-L-L-E-N. Of course, A-L-A-N is very common. Were you just meant to be unique from the start? Probably. (laughs) Have you run into another Alan of your variety? Not many. I think my mother named me after a singer who was popular in the 40s when I was born. I don't know how I came by that, but many people, including relatives, have misspelled my name, so I've gotten used to it. Yes, which is why, of course, your website is agjohnson.us. And, of course, you did .us. If they type in com, it'll redirect them right away to it. Why did you do US? Is that because you're a sociologist? That's what was available when I first created a website. .com .com was not available then. I keep looking for metaphysical reasons and get practical. <laughs> you'll, you'll find them some, someplace in there, I'm sure. Keep digging. So, Can I go back to the question you were, we were just talking about before sure. you took the break? Sure. The question of that belonging is reciprocal. It's very common in this country, I, I hear very often, people saying, I'm not responsible for things in the past that were bad because I didn't do them. I wasn't there for that. Or my ancestors didn't have any part in that, slavery or, or whatever it is. And so therefore, this, I'm not responsible around that at all. That feels to me like a hugely important issue. And it's important because if I am not responsible to what this country is, then I don't know how I call myself American. And the phrase, what this country is, cannot be separated from its history. Because if you take the history of the United States out, that means you take the Constitution out, the Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, you take it all out, well, there's, there's nothing left. We are the living continuation of our past. That's literally what the United States is. And that means if I'm going to call myself an American, then I have to be responsible to that. Not for it in the sense that I'm supposed to feel guilty for things I didn't do, but I am responsible to it now. And so it seems to me, again, that this the sense that I don't have to be accountable around that, I don't have to do anything about that because I didn't do it is one more step away from belonging. It's one more symptom of our disconnection from any kind of belonging as a nation of displaced people. So that what I come out of this journey with partly is a sense that to the extent that I do belong to anything, it is that I belong to a nation of people who are in this condition of not belonging of not being from here, of being the inheritors of conquest. And that that's a huge challenge. 
And the question is, what are we going to do with that? What is our response going to be to the condition that our history has brought us to? And I think that's one of the questions that I come out of this with. It's, of course, not just for me. It's my perception, as you say, that we pick and choose which parts of our history we accept as part of our identity. You know, so we say, yes, you know, the U.S., we were the victors in World War II. And, you know, we made the world safe for democracy or whatever. We pick and choose that kind of thing. And we say, oh, yeah, well, slavery... No, we say, oh, yes, we've written the finest document, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And we ignore the fact that written right in there is the inferior status of all men doesn't happen to include people whose skins are dark. So, or women. Or women. Yes, all men are created equal, as my T-shirt says, is a half truth. Mm-hmm. So it's true that we pick and choose Now, I have the sense that your sociology study is about the U.S. Is the psychology different in the rest of Europe or in India or China or Senegal? Is it your perception that their way of doing it is any different? And I'm not saying that to excuse ours. I'm asking whether it's a human condition as opposed to a U.S. alienated condition. Well, I would say it's a human condition in that it's something that human beings are capable of. Denial is a human capability, which sometimes saves our lives. If you're being abused as a child, being able to go into denial can be what saves your sanity in that situation. So yes, denial is a human thing, and we differ in the degrees to which we engage in it. So one of the problems with the United States is that we never lost the wars. Germany lost the Second World War, which meant Germany could not escape looking at the Holocaust and other things that were done during the Second World War. And so Germany has had to come to terms with that in a way the United States has not had to come to terms with its own genocides and ethnic cleansings and the whole institution of slavery. One can imagine if Japan had won the Second World War, they wouldn't be apologizing every year to China for the atrocities. There was a recent story in the news about that, or to Korea. If they had won, then they wouldn't have done that. So there's a certain arrogance of power that comes with not being humbled in that way. And we have not been humbled in that way, which is, I think, why we can get away with it. But certainly there are, you know, in different countries there are, and I don't pretend to know exactly why, there are different levels of willingness to look at those things than in the United States. It occurs to me as I think about this that given the insecurity that comes out of not belonging, of not being from here, then it occurs to me that the United States probably does have an elevated need to justify itself. And that one of the ways that we can make ourselves feel more rooted than we really are is by these displays of patriotism and superiority, telling the world that we're better than everyone. You don't see that a whole lot in the world. The degree of self-congratulation that you get in the United States, all the massive displays of flags all over the place. And there's a sense of trying too hard to convince the world of how wonderful we are, that says to me, we're trying to convince ourselves how wonderful we are. And the reason we have such a strong need to do that is there's such a weak sense of we, that there really is no American people. There is no American ethnicity. And so that we keep trying to construct this sense of the we that I belong to that doesn't exist. And what substitutes for that we is the state, the nation and particularly the military, which is why there is so much adoration of our military in this country, because they come as close as anything to being something that we can all look at and admire, 
and feel proud of. It comes as close as we get to being a nation. Do you count what happened in Vietnam as a loss? I mean, we declared that we won and we left or whatever, so maybe it wasn't. And I haven't actually read Nothing Left to Lose, which is a novel that you wrote about Vietnam-era fiction about war and the whole grappling with it. Do you count what happened in Vietnam for us as a loss? And is that maybe why, you know, we had the malaise of the 70s? It certainly was a loss. And it's interesting to watch the Pentagon now putting together its observance of the so-called anniversary of the Vietnam War, which does not portray it as, uh, I I think, with much historical accuracy. But Vietnam was a very different kind of loss. When Germany lost, Germany was laid low. It was destroyed. It was occupied by foreign armies for many years. The reorganization of its society was dictated by others. So that's a very different kind of loss. So the United States was never humbled in the sense of being subject to a superior power that had beaten us and was in a position to then dictate to us how we were going to see ourselves. We had no Nuremberg trials because there was no one who was in a position to force them. So that I think Robert McNamara actually said that there are many ways in which the United States, if we had lost in those ways, would have been held accountable for war crimes. But when you don't have someone who's in a position to dictate terms to you, which was not the nature of the loss in Vietnam, then you escape that, mm-hmm. which we have managed to do, which means then we feel free to sort of write the history any way we want, which we do. Yes. To the victor goes the right to write the history, and we've written it in a way that I don't think our younger generation fully understands the lesson we could have learned from Vietnam. As you do your journey through the Midwest, where your ancestors on your father's side were living, you talk about identity, where you're from geographically, and you talk about it ethnically, familially. You discover all these cousins that you haven't ever met before and other relatives. I was surprised by one thing that you didn't include, Mm -hmm. even though you remarked on it. Your grandfather was a Lutheran minister. Your father, whose middle name, by the way, was Luther, (laughs) he reacted totally, had nothing to do, I take it, with religion. And you had certainly some kind of a religious spiritual journey, including your half hour of meditation each day. I know you mentioned that you spent a year worshiping with Quakers along the way. You don't talk about the alienation in terms of a religious rootlessness. And I was curious if that was a conscious decision or if you didn't happen to see that as significant. It stood as glaring to me about something about your family tree and how that affected you. An interesting question. My first thought is I don't know. I don't know. So, you know, try me again. Give me a translation of the question and maybe I will know. (laughs) It just strikes me that somehow the definition of who we are You could say we're Lutherans or we are Norwegians or we're vegetarians. You know, people identify themselves in various ways to say where they fit. I just see a very different pattern over the three generations from your grandfather to you. Yeah. So does that play a part that maybe it's the sequel to the book? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what comes to me as I listen to you. That's as best I can do. My sense is that Organized religion, which I've never really been a part of, especially the monotheistic religions, are geographically portable, which is why you can have missionaries. I mean, you know, Christianity can just be sold and take root anywhere in the world. Place is irrelevant. 
the kind of spirituality that indigenous people practice is the opposite of that. It cannot be separated from place. And so that if you go to Thor, Iowa, which is where my great-grandparents settled to become farmers after coming from Norway, that the town is, I don't know if I could call it a town. You can drive through the center of town, which is where two roads cross at right angles. You can drive through the town in probably about 10 or 15 seconds. The only prominent building that I remember was the church. So in a way, that was the town. That became the anchor in the absence of anything else. And I think this is very much true for the whole history of this country, that that place was a substitute for a deeper kind of belonging to place. And it was portable. The people that emigrated brought it with them. What I was encountering on this trip was a different base of spirituality. I should say what I was looking for was a kind of spiritual connection that did not come out of organized religion and its ideology, but that spoke to me from the land itself. And before I took this trip, Mark, I didn't even know there was such a thing. It never occurred to me, which again, I think is why my response to my mother's ashes, for example, was so different than my response to my father's. And even then, you know, delayed by several years. I didn't know there was such a thing. And it was in the quiet hush and solitude, especially in South Dakota, which was the farthest out I went on this trip. That solitude and quiet was for me in many ways spiritually significant more than anything else. Uh, I will never forget being at the grasslands in the south of Pierre. There is this, I don't know, it's hundreds of miles of grass. The way I think of it is that you're looking out over an ocean that sort of has rolling waves, gently rolling waves, and it's it's ocean as far as you can see, and this huge bowl of sky above you, and all around you, all you see is grass. And I'm standing there by myself, looking out at this vastness, and the feeling I have is one of sadness. It's one of grief, because I feel small and unattached. This is not mine. And I feel that most intensely in that moment when I am aware that an indigenous person, I imagine a Lakota Sioux standing there, especially an elder Lakota Sioux, looking out over that expanse, that vastness, would see himself reflected back from it. The land would be speaking to him about who he is, who his people are. And I felt in that moment the absence of that so profoundly. And I realized that the legacy that we have inherited from the history of this country is one of not knowing who we are. And yes, there are lots of ways of knowing who you are. There are lots of ways of experiencing what we would call the feeling of belonging. But in this way, I think we have no idea who we are and that it creates a huge hole. My wife, Nora, has called it immigrant grief and that it's inherited across generations. We are never free of it. As long as we don't turn and look at it for what it is and then engage with it, not only individually, but together. That deeply touches me. I have to comment, though, however, that that grief is probably common to the Native peoples. I don't know how many Native peoples actually are living on, have reservations on, have control of the land where they originally were. It's like the Cherokee and all the others from the east were pushed west. And so they're native peoples, but the land is nothing like their land and their mountain and their creek, that the one that they knew so well. So I wonder if that immigrant grief is not common to a large portion of the native peoples, native to this continent, but 
not necessarily anything about the environment climate that they are now situated in. I could not agree with you more. I mean, I was responding in terms of people coming from outside North America because that's what we were talking about. But except that they weren't immigrants or emigrants. They were expelled. They were forced refugees. They were ethnically cleansed. I mean, whatever the language is, it was by force, not by choice. And I mean, I think, for example, of the Cherokee who you know, went from Georgia and the Carolinas to Oklahoma, as so many other tribes were forced to move to places that were so unlike the land where their ancestors' bones are buried. So in that sense, North America is full of grief, and most of it is unacknowledged. And unacknowledged grief is toxic. And the efforts of Native peoples in North America to deal with that, and I think there's a great deal of effort, uh, not only to reclaim their cultures, but to engage with their grief, because that's what's required. The rest of us in North America, our denial and our refusal to engage with the grief, because you know, the pursuit of happiness is one of our watchwords. We're not supposed to feel bad in this country. It's not okay to feel bad, but that's precisely what's required if we're going to deal with our share of the grief that has been imposed by the history of this country. You know, there's a question I have, Alan, and again, it could sound defensive, but it's actually meant constructively. And that is the grief that's not acknowledged or owned. I find that, again, to be a human condition in so much of the world. And I do think it's pathological. I do think it comes out in poisonous ways. Do you know of a place anywhere in the world and, you know, over the past thousand years, let's say, that they have a healthier way of doing that? I mean, I think of the Dutch, who I really like. I've I've visited the Netherlands a number of times, and I really like so much about their worldview and approach. And yet they are the ones who are responsible for the apartheid in South Africa. I mean, they, they seeded that. I try and find a place somewhere in the world. Is China, India, Burma, you know, any of those places. Do you know of a healthier society having lived out something better that we could take as a role model or some inspiration for how we might do better? I think that virtually every nation was established because they conquered it. And I think the native tribes here conquered each other and took over places and there were successive waves of it. I'm just not sure where I look to find some peoples who somehow got it right, who somehow Mm -hmm. they moved into the neighborhood without displacing the natives and they acknowledged their grief and their powerfulness and powerlessness. All of the things that I think make for healthy worldviews and, and living out. As I understand the history of Native Americans, I think they have come much closer to this than we ever came. They did not come to North America and conquer and displace other people in the way that white people came here and conquered and displaced. That most nations were founded upon conquest, I don't know that I think that's true. Most nations grew out of migration flows that go back thousands or tens of thousands of years. Native Americans, you know, were here, I guess, was it 10,000 years ago? I mean, there's some dispute over that, but really many thousands of years. So the question becomes, are there nations that are like us in the sense that we were founded by people who came over an ocean with the express purpose of setting up shop someplace else, and we didn't have to. The impetus to come to North America was creed. People came here because they wanted something. They wanted to have all the land they could have, and they wanted to get wealthy. 
And that's why it was bankrolled by the monarchs. Australia was a prison colony. So the white people in Australia are in no way indigenous to that place, and they, they didn't come there through some kind of natural process of moving from one place that doesn't have enough food, for example, to a place that has more game and more food. These are countries that were founded on a process that I think is almost completely different than pretty much any other country in the world, where you have these people who are clearly outsiders who do not have any real reason to be there. The land that they're from isn't even contiguous to the land that they're conquering. They're getting in boats and ships, and they're sailing for weeks and weeks and weeks to get to this place. Mm-hmm. And then they proceed to take it by force and any other means they can. I don't think that there are very many countries in the world where that's true. But I also want to go back to my question to you, Mark, if I may, of are you talking about in- engaging with grief? I think most countries in the world do much, much better around grief than we do, because in most countries of the world, they do not fear death to the extent that we fear death in the United States. And I think the fear of death is directly connected to our lack of rootedness and our fear that there is nothing to receive us when we die, that to die is to go into a kind of non-existence compared with indigenous cultures in which they have a very clear sense that when you die, you join your ancestors and where are your ancestors? Well, they're in the land that you're going to be buried on or burned on or whatever it is, but you, you know where you're from, which means you know where you're going to go. And if you're a displaced people, if you're atomized into all of these supposedly autonomous individuals who are accountable to no one and nothing, then I think it's really easy for death to appear as something really kind of horrifying. And we are death-phobic in this country. And that means that we are also grief-phobic. When someone dies who's close to you, I think in general you get like a couple of weeks to get over it and start moving on, maybe a month. And then people expect you to start moving on. If you're still in grief, you know, wailing, gnashing your teeth, then they think there's something wrong with you. Oh, they're depressed. They need some medication, whatever, some kind of intervention. We don't honor grief in this country because we also don't honor and have a place for death, without which, of course, all life is impossible. (laughs) You have to have death for anything to live. So I think that our inability to deal with grief and our inability to deal with death marks us as quite unusual in the world. Most countries are a whole lot more attuned to the reality of dying as the natural outcome of life than we are. And I think it speaks to our dislocation, our degree of being lost. You know, there's about 50% of what you said that I agree with just absolutely fervently and about half, which I question as if it's a reality. Let me mention first, I agree specifically, death phobic in this country, 100%, because I really perceive the major religion of this country as materialism. That's one of the reasons I think that we're very death phobic. And a lot of people who would identify as Christian would say, no, I'm a Christian, I'm not materialist. But in fact, as we've seen, there's some very strong alignment of this Christian ideal with materialism. It's our God-given right to accumulate things. That's because it shows God's favor or whatever. So I'm totally with you on that, but maybe for multiple reasons beyond what you cited. I lived for two years, though, in Africa. I was in Togo, West Africa, as a Peace Corps volunteer, and I caught one glimpse that was just stunning for me. I happened to be at the beach and the ocean, Atlantic Ocean, and someone drowned, and I saw the rescue attempt to get the person and so on. Half an hour later or so, his wife showed up 
and she was gnashing, yelling her teeth, speaking local language, which I didn't speak enough to understand what she was saying. But they had friends holding her back. She was going to cast herself into the sea. And the outward expression of grief was just amazing. I think the way that they do funerals, which are multiple days events, lends credence to what you say. But on the other hand, then I think of how it's done in multiple other Asian countries, where I would say that they're probably prohibited to speak of grief, even. It's a very closed and impassive thing from the outside. So I do know places where, yes, grief is better expressed, but there's an awful lot of places where I think it's at least as stuffed as what we do here in the USA. We're known for being rather emotional in some ways. Your take? Well, I, I do not know everything about everywhere. <laughs> oh, wait a minute, Alan. That's why I had you on this show, because I knew you knew everything. <laughs> I also don't know, you know, that something isn't done outwardly doesn't mean that it's not supported inwardly. So I, I can't speak about every culture in the world. And I think that you can have similar patterns for different reasons, so that the imperative in this country to be happy, <laughs> but to be happy, you know, that, that to be sad is just to be, is being a drag. It's an imposition on others. You're, you know, we are not supposed to be sad, which means that grief makes people uncomfortable. And I think about the way in which those who are in grief get isolated as a result of that. They either fake it, they either, you know, quote, get over it, end quote, or they face being alone with it after a while. They face being alone with the profundity of it. I imagine, I've been married to Nora for 35 years now, and I literally cannot imagine a life without her, even though that could really happen. One of us is going to die first, most likely. And that could really happen. And I try to imagine the depth of loss and grief that comes out of that. And it feels to me as not that I'm going to be unhappy or miserable for the rest of my life, but that the grief will be something that I will live for the rest of my life. And that that's the way it's supposed to be. It is a testament to my connection to her, that of course I would not get over this. And my sense, if I can make a leap, is that to be a part of a people calls for the same thing. So that we as a nation are not supposed to get over the genocide of Native peoples. We are not supposed to get over the institution of slavery. We're not supposed to get over Vietnam and so on. We're not supposed to. And then people will, will respond by saying, well, that, then, then I'm, I, I'll feel bad. You just want me to feel bad about that. <laughs> and I think, but why not? And what I come back to, Mark, a lot of times as I think about these things we're talking about is that how do we live loss? And I think about, I've used this example a lot now in interviews. I think, well, what if I had an accident and I lost my sight permanently? And at that time, I would have a choice to make about how was I going to live the remainder of my life? And I could be angry and it's not fair. Why me? All of that. Or I could also say, well, I guess this is the way it is now, that this huge loss is now a part of who I am and it's a part of my life. So that I imagine every morning waking up and knowing that when I open my eyes, I'm not going to see anything. And how hard, how horrible that would be. How grievous that would be. I will never, ever see anything again. And at the same time that that's true, I'm also alive and I have a life to live. So it seems to me that the challenge is how do I carry both of those things? How do I carry the reality of the loss and the reality that I still am alive and I'm accountable to that life 
to the soul that animates my life. I'm accountable to that too. But now I have to incorporate into that this terrible loss that's permanent. And I think that the challenge for us as a nation is how to incorporate those two truths into our experience of ourselves as Americans. That to be an American is as much about the horror as it is about the things that make us feel good. It's both the loss of my sight and the rest of my life. And that we have to find a way to carry both. And I think that what I encountered out there in many ways, Mark, was having both of those things held out to me. The sadness of the fact that my longing was never going to be satisfied, but also the fact that here I am, and after this I go home and I continue, and that I have to take both of those realities with me. You know, there's so much that you've given us to chew on, both in the book, not from here, but all these other publications that you've had. I do want to encourage people to go to your website, Alan. The website is agjohnson.us, and there's a link on nordenspiritradio.org. You can check out links to his books, Privilege, Power, and Difference. There's The Gender Knot. There's novels that he's written like Nothing Left to Lose or The First Thing and The Last Thing. There's also essays, one of them that uh, I glanced at that I was interested in. It's different for men. That's one that grabbed my interest because I'm part of a men's group now for 24 years. There's also answers to questions under the title, you know, I'm glad you asked. Are you just into white guilt or is affirmative action racist? And he poses the question at one point on one of his posts, should men open doors for women? There's so much of valuable, chewable material there, Alan. And I really hope people do go to your site and check it out, as well as reading Not From Here, your recent memoir. Alan, again, I feel vastly nourished by traveling with you across the Midwest in your memoir, the ideas you've shared here today, and the richness of your spiritual path. Thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. It was a real pleasure to be with you. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.